All right, if you can turn to Mark chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning, verses 7 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, it's up on the screen, or should be relatively soon. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Let's pray. Father, make Jesus known to us this morning in a greater, fuller way than we already know of him. Help us to see uh, his power. Help us to see his compassion and pity. Uh, Help us to see that he is a savior, uh, ready and willing to deliver. That he is one that we can entrust ourselves to. And we need your Holy Spirit to work uh, so that we do that. That's not something that we can produce on our own. And so we cry out to you, uh, not as the unclean spirits did. Uh, We cry out to you as people who know that Jesus is greater and good. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Jesus was uh, both popular and much maligned, as we see from uh, this text and uh, previous texts. And the the question sort of emerges uh, in a larger sense. um, Who was right about Jesus? Are we right about Jesus? Uh, Mark's not afraid of these questions. Uh, He presents uh, a Jesus that he believes in uh, that other people didn't. But he believes, he trusts, that God will work so that people will trust in the Jesus he presents. It starts off right here with this, uh, if we forgot about last week, this strange sentence of Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And so let's remember why he withdrew to the sea of Galilee in the first place. Uh, Let's remember... for. For some of you, this might be the first time you've ever heard this because you weren't here last week. Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees had escalated. It had gotten ugly. It had resulted in the Pharisees and the Herodians joining counsel together, deliberating together, making plans together for a way to kill Jesus. And not just to, you know, assassinate him, but rather to legally get rid of Jesus. Their plan was to have him executed, ultimately fulfilled by Pilate in Rome. The Pharisees, earthly enemies of Jesus, 
enemies of Jesus because he did not follow the man-made traditions. In fact, when we get later on to uh, chapter 7, we're going to see that Jesus is going to quote from Isaiah 29. And he's going to apply it to the people of Israel and more particularly to the Pharisees. And in Isaiah 29, verse 13, the Lord says, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips. Sounds good, right? The mouth and lips are engaged. While their hearts are far from me. They're paying lip service to God, he says. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Their rules, their regulations, were not the ones that God had given, but they were the ones that they have tacked on. And that perfectly describes the Pharisees from Jesus' perspective. And so they had a a man-made religion, and it was an external religion. It was not a heart religion, which is what the Old Testament was crying out for. The Old Testament made mention of the uncircumcised hearts and in Deuteronomy 30 made the promise of God circumcising their hearts so they they would be tender and want to follow him, to love him with all they have on the inside. So some of Jesus' earthly enemies were religious people, the Pharisees. But some were what what Tim Keller calls irreligious people, the Herodians. They were essentially the immoral secularists of that day. They, of course, were, were aligned with Herod, who was uh, placed as king over that region by the Roman Empire, and therefore they followed Roman culture, and therefore were much in, in, engaged in immorality of various kinds. Jesus was their enemy because he threatened their status with Rome. Because if he's the real king, their king might get deposed. Not only that, but he challenged their sin because they were hard-pressed to sin. Uh, They they were pursuing this. There was no struggle. There was was no desire to turn away like we see many of the people that Jesus does minister to. And so we have these two groups representing both the religious and and the irreligious opponents or enemies of Jesus. And it's because uh, they're now plotting against him to kill him uh, that Jesus withdraws again to the wilderness. This is not the first time Jesus has gone to the wilderness. He went out into the wilderness after his baptism for 40 days of temptation at the hand of the devil. But we also see that Jesus withdrew earlier when things were too busy in Capernaum, when too many people were coming to see him. Jesus withdraws to this more empty space, the wilderness. The wilderness where, which had such a significant role in the life of Israel. The wilderness where God's son went after coming out of Egypt. So it was a place of sonship, a place of discipline, a place of gaining this new identity. And Jesus goes there to form, in a sense, a new exodus from the false religion that much of Israel had fallen into. Why does Jesus go? Why doesn't Jesus just stay and fight? Why does he withdraw? Jesus was aware that it was not yet time for him to die as the sin bearer. 
We saw that repeatedly in John's Gospel when we were, we were looking at that. His time had not come, and, and Jesus is aware of his time. And it has not arrived. The time for Jesus was to preach, not to die. And so Jesus changes not what he does, but he changes where he does it. He moves from the cities and towns of Galilee to the outskirts, the deserted places around the sea where most people lived and worked. There's a time to engage, but there's also a time to withdraw. This is determined by the overall mission that Jesus had a sense of. And Jesus is not the only one who had a sense of that kind of calling and that struggle. We see Paul wrestling with this in Philippians chapter 1. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's torn. He says, if I live in the flesh, it means fruitful labor for me. Yet I shall not, uh, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. And so Paul, at that point in prison writing that, wasn't sure if his time had arrived. Part of him wants it to arrive, but part of him also reckons with the reality of fruitful ministry that may yet come despite his being in prison. We see the apostles wrestling with the same sort of thing in the book of Acts. There were times in which they engaged And there are times in which they withdrew. We see from our reading in Acts 17, Paul uh, withdrawing from Thessalonica and going elsewhere to preach the gospel. And the brothers and sisters encouraged him to do that. It takes wisdom. But we recognize that as heralds of the kingdom, they experienced earthly opposition just like Jesus did. And so, if we're following Jesus, if we're being heralds of the kingdom as well, uh, then we should expect some measure of opposition to the message that we have. We experience this. We're going to experience it from religious people at times. Think of the, the church in Uganda, for instance. Much of their oppression comes from religious people, but people from a different religion. Versus China, where there's great oppression and persecution of the church, but there it's coming from the irreligious, it's coming from the secularists, it's coming from the communists. And so, in different parts of the world, the church experiences different kinds of opposition, and we are no different here. We also can experience opposition. So Jesus and his disciples experience opposition from earthly enemies. Now, the thought that comes to my mind is, did this opposition mean the end of fruitful ministry? That's a legitimate question. Mark wants us to know that Jesus' strategic withdrawal was not a sign of defeat. I'm reminded of Dunkirk uh, that battle in World War II when it, was, it seemed like it was almost all over. 
because the Germans had what remained of the British and French armies stranded on a beach in France. Sorry, it's not France, is it? Dunkirk. <laughs> Wherever Dunkirk is. Okay? Strategic retreat. Instead of thinking that the war is going to be won here, Winston Churchill removed the soldiers, both British and French, so that they would fight another day and perhaps have a chance. And so Jesus here has a, what we could call a strategic retreat. In the midst of this, we see a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea. Actually, it wasn't just Galilee and Judea. Jerusalem, Idomia, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. And I meant to have this map not just on the, the screen, but also in your, uh, your notes. But if we think about these areas, we see Galilee up there by Lake Tiberias, which is also known as the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus is ministering. And so there's people from that area, Galilee, that are joining him. And, if, and not only that, but we see that people from all the way down south in Jerusalem are going up and joining the great crowd that is following Jesus, that is listening to Jesus. But it's more than that. We see this mysterious sort of name that I have trouble pronouncing, which actually is a referring to the kingdom of Edom. And so <clears throat> the kingdom of Edom represents the descendants of Esau. And so now they're extended cousins who had no part of the covenant, okay? Some of them are going all the way up to the Sea of Galilee to hear Jesus. But it's not just from way down south, but it's across the Jordan to the east where we see people represented from the kingdoms of Ammon and Moab, farther distant cousins because they're descendants of Lot. They're starting to come and hear Jesus in Galilee. But Mark also tells us about Tyre and Sidon, people from the, the region the, the, of the Phoenicians, way up there in what we now call Lebanon, were coming down to hear Jesus. And you have this sense of north, south, east, west. They're coming from all over the place. The fullness of the land is coming to hear Jesus. And so even though he has opposition from the Pharisees and the Herodians, the people still come to find Jesus not in, a, in an important place, not in a place that was prestigious, not even in a designated place, but wherever he was around the Sea of Galilee, where there was no GPS site, uh, there, there was no address uh, for, you know, 1555 Overton Road, you know where this is. They didn't know but they went the, to the area, the region, and they went looking for him, and they found him. People from Israel and beyond, foreshadowing what's going to come because the greater David, okay? The first David had mighty men and followers who were not Israelites, right? One case in point, Uriah the what? The Hittite. He was a Gentile. 
not a Jew. The greater David is going to have a kingdom that brings in these Gentiles from all over the world. And we see it beginning here in Mark chapter 3, these Gentiles coming to hear him. Fulfilling what we see in Isaiah chapter 2. This promise uh, that they're going to go to the house of the Lord. They're going to go to the highest mountains that are lifted up. And all the nations, Isaiah says, shall flow to it. And many people shall come. And they will go, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that we may, He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. It's coming true. It's happening right here in Mark 3. It hasn't stopped happening today in 2019. We see that David's fallen tent as promised in the Old Testament and being talked about in Acts 15 is being restored and the remnant of humanity is seeking shelter under the auspices of Jesus, the King. That this new kingdom, this different kingdom that's so different from the kingdoms of the world is a place where they are finding help and refuge. The nations were coming to Jesus, the true Israel, for wisdom and truth. And in case you didn't realize it was a great crowd before, Mark mentions it again, when the great crowd heard All that he was doing, they came to him. They had heard the news about what Jesus was doing, not just preaching, but also doing. They heard that he had healed lepers. They heard that he had healed the paralyzed. They heard that he had forgiven sin. They heard that he had cast out unclean spirits, and they ran to Jesus because they needed help. There were so many that we see that Jesus tells his disciples to prepare a boat as a precaution because the crowds would continually press in among him or on him. And this word pressing in is one that is used for the pressing of grapes to make wine, the crushing of grapes to make wine. Some of us are old enough to remember Cincinnati, 1979, a Who concert where the pressing in, I'm not saying you were there, but it made all the news. The pressing in of the people trying to get in and how 11 people lost their lives being crushed to death. And so let us remember that this is a dangerous thing that Jesus is trying to avoid. It's not simply he's fearful. He healed many, Mark tells us, so that all who had diseases pressed around him. They're they're trying to touch him in the hopes that they too might be healed. They're seeking this idea of healing. If we just transliterate it, it's basically therapy. They're seeking immediate, instantaneous therapy from Jesus so that they're healed of their afflictions. Which is what that word that is translated in ESV actually points to the idea of affliction, something that is connected to being a scourge, a punishment. We have to think of what we read in Deuteronomy 
28. This is a people, remember, they have departed from the ways of the Lord. They had fallen into a false understanding of religion, an externalized religion, not a heart religion. They were not loving the Lord their God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so we should understand that the curses of the covenant that we read about in Deuteronomy 28 had fallen upon that group of people because they were in covenant with God. And some of those were diseases. And some of it was occupation. They were an occupied people. Rome occupied them. The initial fulfillment of that was Babylon, but they have, even though they came back into the land, they continued to rebel against God and they just kept changing the one that they serve. Going from Babylon to, well, the Medes and the Persians to the Greeks, now the Romans. But Jesus has come. Not that they might experience discipline, but Jesus has come that they might experience restoration, that they might experience uh, repentance, and and he might bring their hearts back to the Lord. They experience the curse of the covenant in order to drive them to Jesus, who would eventually bear the curse of the covenant, as Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 3. They had perhaps a a greater understanding of what it meant to bear the curses of the covenant than we do because here they're bearing aspects of it. They saw their affliction as connected to their waywardness, a result of their waywardness. They saw their political oppression as part of the punishment for their waywardness. They're like the psalmist in Psalm 119, 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Afflictions provide open doors of ministry for disciples where we come to offer comfort in the Redeemer to them. Uh, Not to mock them that they suffer, but to say, there is a way. There is one who knows, one who understands, one who cares, one who can alleviate some measure of your suffering, one who has borne the penalty for your waywardness. We point them to a Jesus who experienced alienation. He experienced hatred and enmity at the hands of the uh, Pharisees and the Herodians. Jesus who experienced lies being spoken about him. Jesus who experienced weakness, poverty, and so much more in in his role as Messiah who would be the Savior of sinners. And so we commend to them not someone who is unfamiliar with suffering, but one who is very familiar with suffering firsthand. He knows what it's like. And that is why the church is filled with hurting people. Sometimes, uh, as leadership, we can be overwhelmed uh, with the number of hurting people within congregations. But there's a reason they come to the church. 
It's because Jesus beckons them to come. Because Jesus fills his church with people who are hurting that they might find refuge and peace amongst his people. So Jesus and his disciples restore the afflicted in the nations by his grace. Was this period, we see that it is a fruitful time of ministry, but was this period of ministry an unqualified success? No problems whatsoever. Mark, of course, is emphasizing the great crowds that are coming to Jesus. So there's no mention here of the Pharisees. There's no mention in this particular paragraph of the Herodians, but there is a mention of somebody. The unclean spirits. When the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out. They're bowing because Jesus has more authority than they do, but they're not bowing willingly. They're crying out, screaming, bellowing, croaking. There's an element here of kingdom conflict. Paul talks a little bit about this in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, reminds the, the Ephesians that they were dead in their sins and trespasses in which they walked instead of walking in the ways of the Lord. But here's the key part. They were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. They were in the kingdom of darkness, Paul is saying, which he goes on to in uh, Colossians. But they were serving the evil one. And so when, as Jesus comes as a herald of this new kingdom, what he's really engaging in is spiritual conflict because he's seeking to set people free from the kingdom of darkness. He's calling people out of their slavery to sin. And that kingdom doesn't like it. And that kingdom is going to oppose him. They could not withstand Jesus, but they continue to oppose Him precisely because they are spiritual enemies of His. And so it's not just earthly enemies that Jesus contends with. It's not just earthly enemies that His people contend with. It's also spiritual enemies that both Jesus and His people will contend with. What's remarkable about this is that they cry out, You are the Son of God. They make a true declaration of Jesus' identity. We've seen that Jesus is the Messiah. We've seen that Jesus is the Son of Man. We've seen that the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. And now we add to it, He is the Son of God. Not like Caesar, as we've mentioned before, but the true Son of God. Not an adopted Son of God. And not a pretend Son of God, but God the Son. Forever God, but forever Son as well. They reveal His true identity, but they do not do it in order to bring glory to Jesus, but they do it in order to make His life miserable. 
They're trying to speed up the conflict with the Pharisees who would understand that statement as blasphemous, which is exactly what they end up doing. And that is exactly one of the charges that is placed against Jesus. It was of blasphemy because he made himself out to be the Son of God. It's not Jesus' time yet, but they're trying to make it his time. That's what's going on. It's the true Son of God, not Caesar, who cares about the afflicted, the sick, and the oppressed. It's the true Son of God, not the Pharisees, who cares about the afflicted, the sick, the oppressed. It's the true Son of God, not the Herodians, who cares about the afflicted, the sick, and the oppressed. He's different than any other leader they've ever had contact with or they've ever heard about. He cares about the hoi polloi, the common person, and the struggles that they experience. It's not just he's concerned about the elite who scratches back. We see the conflict continuing in that he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This is a word in the New Testament, uh, in the Greek translation, that is used specifically for divine rebuke. He's not simply saying, hey man, could you not do that? (laughs) But he's speaking with authority in a way that I can't speak. He's speaking as one who has authority over these unclean spirits and telling them, shut up. Stifle, silence, however you want to put it, but it's not kind. Jesus is not being gentle as he does this. Because they are his enemies. And he wants them quiet. And so we we obey and submit not simply because Jesus is God, but also due to the character of this God. See, they're, they're simply obeying out of his authority as God. Uh, but we go beyond that because we've learned something of this. And last week, uh, in the, the teen Sunday school class, we were talking about the providence of God. And what's amazing about one of the, the first paragraph we looked at in that, it's not the first paragraph on the providence of God, but the one we looked at that week, begins and ends with who God is. So that you knew that the God that was in control of all things is a God that can be trusted because He's infinite in goodness. He's, ex- he's displaying His wisdom. He is righteous. He is holy. That is the God that is in control of all things that take place. And so we don't need to fear that He will be capricious, that He will be cruel, that He will be destructive. And it's the same thing here. When we understand who Jesus is, in part because of His healing of these people, 
we understand that the Son of God is for us, not against us, when we come in faith. That he is one who could be entrusted, uh, who could be trusted with our very lives. It's not simply a matter of authority, but also of his character. The unclean spirits are not the only spiritual enemies Jesus has. If we go to Revelation 12, we see the bigger picture, which we kind of get a hint at in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. But the dragon, or Satan, the, the serpent from of old, it says that he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so the, the evil one, the dragon, makes war against Jesus' people, just as he made war against Jesus. And there is a spiritual conflict that continues to this day. Don't think of it in terms of a Frank Peretti novel. Where every little thing is spiritual conflict, and yet it's spiritual conflict is a reality as he seeks to uh, deceive the church so they move away from their mission. He puts obstacles so they will not fulfill their mission. This is a true thing. The kids and I are watching Stranger Things. We're in season three. And I was thinking about that this morning, how the mind flayer can't rest with being defeated. The mind flayer keeps coming back for more, trying to find a way into this world to corrupt it and destroy it. That's a picture of the dragon. Defeated by Jesus upon the cross, he has still not given up, and he wants to destroy the people of God. He never gives up. He never gets in until Jesus is going to throw him into the abyss. And... We might be afraid, but we must remember he who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. The whole point of Revelation, the book of Revelation is Jesus wins. So we don't have to be undone by spiritual conflict. We need to remember Jesus wins just as he won right here in Mark chapter 3. Jesus was not overcome by these unclean spirits. He overcame the unclean spirits, and he will continue because the gates of hell shall not prevail. Jesus wins. And he always will win. May not look like it is. at a particular snapshot in time. It, if you go to Dunkirk, it doesn't look like the British are going to win World War II. It looks very bad, but who won? It wasn't the Germans. Jesus is greater. And that's part of why Paul in Ephesians 6 tells the church there to put on his, his armor and to draw strength from him because Jesus is greater. I don't have time to go into this uh, this morning. Uh, there's a new book that just came out. For those of you who, who, who love the Puritans, um, 
You can put that up. There you go. Uh, if you love the Puritans, there's always Gurnall, the Christian in complete armor. Uh, the full version is, I think, three volumes. I have a version that's in a daily devotional. It's really good. Uh, Gurnall is good. But Ian Duguid, who's a professor at uh, Westminster in Philadelphia and an ARP church planter, has just released The Whole Armor of God, How Christ's Victory Strengthens Us for Spiritual Warfare. I love Ian Duguid's writing. It's a book to buy, to prepare yourself so that you're aware of what Christ has provided you with in the gospel for the ongoing spiritual warfare you will experience as long as you're faithful to him. God, the Son of God and His disciples experience spiritual warfare. If we're to take these three threads and kind of weave them together, it could be that despite opposition, the Son of God restores the afflicted. Now that, uh, that opposition is earthly and spiritual, but Jesus continues to work to restore those who were afflicted. Jesus' enemies seem to be inescapable, When Jesus withdraws from his earthly enemies, there come his spiritual enemies, trying to subvert the preaching of the gospel. But in the midst of this, we see that Jesus is the Son of God who comes to establish his kingdom on earth, a kingdom of Jew and Gentile together, taking shelter under his tent to learn how to walk with him. Have you found refuge there? If you have found refuge there, are you joining with Jesus as a herald of this kingdom and learning to walk in his ways? Are you just seeking healing or are you coming to become a disciple? Really is the question. Because Jesus offers you healing so that you become an engaged disciple as we see as we continue to go through the Gospel of Mark. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We know of the forgiveness of sin. We, many of us have felt the, the freedom of that burden being lifted off of us. And some of us have experienced the burden of other kinds of afflictions lifted off of us because of Jesus. And with those chains gone, our hearts set free, we went forth and followed Thee. And Father, help us to communicate that message. Help us to embody that message as we think of um, the neighborhood next door and as we think of the people that we know at work in our own neighborhoods and our families. Help us to embody this message seeking to set people free from the kingdom of darkness because we tell them of a better kingdom and a greater king, a king who loves and a king who cares and not just a king who rules for his own benefit. And we ask this in the name of that greater king, Jesus, 
Amen.